All right. Welcome back to Hints and Guesses. This is Kent Dobson. This is my podcast. I guess in a way I should welcome myself back because I've been away from the mic for a while. Well, not totally. I was in Israel and I took um, some equipment with me and recorded a podcast with two of my friends who are Christian pastors there. And I will eventually put that out, but I use some equipment that I'm kind of unfamiliar with, so I got to figure out how to get it off, and um, it needs a little cleaning up from um, the levels and whatnot. So that is forthcoming. I think it was a really interesting, unscripted, unplanned, um, other than I, I sent them a message on WhatsApp and said, hey, let's make a podcast. And, and it was like two days before I was in Jerusalem, and they said, okay. And they didn't even ask what it was about. And so, so we, we have a, had a conversation about what life is like from their perspective. And anytime I think you can bring in, and this is um, bring in someone else's point of view, especially in this uh, contentious uh, part of the world, and just listen, I think it's it can be life-giving and, and eye-opening. And so look for that. And in fact, I'm starting to think about future trips there. I have a potential one in October of this year, and then I have two that will... Uh, for sure happen January 2021 and April 2021. So if that interests you, the details are on my website, my brand new website, by the way. And thank you to a friend of mine who um, you can also find online, Company Bell. He's not paying me to say that, but he helped me with my website. I'm still, I'm not quite done with it. I'm, I'm, it's a work in progress, but it's significantly different and significantly better than my old site, which I sort of made up in a day or so. So uh, anyway, information about future Israel trips, if, if, it, if it intrigues you, if you're on a kind of spiritual adventure, which we all are, but if you want to bring um, some more conscious attention to that and you're interested in conversations about religion and, and the Bible and the story of Jesus and, um, and of course, uh, politics and, and history, and um, it all gets mixed up in, in a place like Israel, and it's not a... It is a tourist destination, of course, but it's also not that, and mostly not that. It's a living place where um, history and contemporary life sort of um, are intertwined. So anyway, that's a little advertisement for future trips, if that's something you'd like to uh, save up for, or if that interests you in any way, uh, check it out online. I've, and, and while I'm on the topic of ads, I will get to my podcast, which is going to be about anger. Um, always a good time. I've got two other things I want to, to say. The, the first is I have been doing something that I call companion guiding, which is my uh, phrase for working one-on-one with people. There's something I like about the combination of that companion guiding that, um, seems to match the kind of work, one-on-one work that I do. And this year, I'm opening up some additional spots. I work full-time here in, in Michigan at uh, C3 as a lead teacher. So I have limited capacity, but it, it for sure is one of the most rewarding things that I stumbled into in the last few years. Rewarding for me personally. I love working one-on-one with people, and I, I hope also rewarding for people who, who choose it. And I want to open up some more spots. Some more spots are available. And 
you know, if you're, if you, I work with people in all kinds of different stages of life and, um, in their vocation and sort of professional life and in their, uh, relationships and with their existential questions and religious, um, questions and hangups. So, um, if that intrigues you and you think, yeah, maybe I would like to talk to someone, go to my website under companion guiding and I have a description little more detail of what it's like and and I and the application I put it all on there so you know um, sort of the opening questionnaire what I'm asking and um, that that can even help you discern is, is this something that I'm I might be interested in I, I usually encourage people to go ahead and book three sessions ahead of time because sometimes it takes a little while to get going and get to know one another so uh, all that is pretty clearly outlined on my website. And I want to offer a little special. Um, usually it's 125 an hour unless you book larger sessions. You can again all see that on my on my website. But if you listen to the podcast, then if you book this month, 100 bucks flat, doesn't matter how many sessions you book. If you just want to do one, I always encourage more, but three or six or nine or 12 or whatever, um, all 100 bucks a session. And you can you can do all that uh, through my site. So check that out. And um, one more thing, I'm offering a class in March, which I'm calling Lent Descent, because Lent is the time of year that symbolizes in the Christian calendar, um, which is also nature-based, by the way. The It imitates and symbolizes the time of year we're in, and also the... Um, journey of transformation itself, which is um, a kind of a severance and leaving home and, and a kind of dip down into the mysteries of the underworld and the in-between time between darkness and light, and then the ascent. That's sort of what the Christian calendar uh, symbolizes, but it's it's trans-religious in a sense, the journey of transformation. And of course, there are many ways to talk about the journey of transformation, but I want to talk about descent and return. And I've got five um, sort of patterns that I want to discuss. And the class is going to be online Monday nights, 7 to 9 Eastern time, 200 bucks. That gets you all five classes, which will be two hours in length. They'll be recorded in case you miss one or more of them. That's okay. And, um, and it also gets you one one-on-one -on -one session and th that'll even give you a taste of, is this something that I want to continue? So that's a way also, if you're just thinking about companion guiding, you can sign up for the class and at least you'll get, uh, five sort of teachings. The nice thing about, um, the online class I've done, this might be my third one online, but the first time I'm, I'm calling it Lent Descent or it's, um, the first time I've done a Lent class, I should say, uh, the amazing thing about it is also a small group sort of setting. It's limited in, in terms of numbers. So there's teaching and there's some interaction. So a little bit of um, questions and probing and sort of sharing where, where each of us are uh, is also a part of the class. So anyway, if that interests you, check it out. Also online, you can fill out the questionnaire online um, and sign up right away. I'd love to have have you join us. And, um, and again, if you have trouble with the time, seven to nine Eastern standard on Monday nights in the month of March, each session will be recorded and sent out and then available for you to listen whenever during the week. And yeah, so, um, 
I think that covers the bases in terms of new things that I'm offering in the short term here. Let's talk about anger. And maybe first thing I want to say is that this idea for a podcast about anger or around anger came from a, a patron. I have a Patreon account if you want to support the podcast itself in an ongoing way. You can go to patreon.com forward slash Ken Dobson. I know a lot of ads uh, here at the beginning. Um, but I'm really, really, really grateful for my Patreon supporters. It makes a huge difference. It helps me put this out. And and also, they have their own little uh, messaging platform. So anyone who's a, a patron can interact with me through that um, messaging platform. And that's how this podcast started. Because someone said, make one on anger. I'm struggling with it. I don't know what to do with it. I don't I don't know if it's good or bad or if it's the problem and... and and also, this person, along with others who have suggested something similar, if you come from a Christian background, it's you're not sure what to do with anger. And it's kind of confusing because on the one hand, often we're told anger is the problem. You shouldn't be angry. Don't do anything out of anger. Um, God is not angry, although that's questionable if you read the Old Testament. Um, and, then, and then we have this strange story of Jesus, like, making a cord and whipping people and yelling and screaming at them in the temple. And you're like, hey, Jesus, calm down, man. Don't be angry. So what the heck is it? And what does it serve? And I think I'd like to call the podcast today the hidden gift or gifts of anger, the hidden gifts of anger, because that's the that's the direction I'd like to aim the arrow. Not because I'm trying to um, I don't know, be optimistic about it and say, oh, it's really a gift. But I actually think it is a gift. And in what sense? And it's it's one of those um, paths that we are walking or we might be walking that has the potential for, for a lot of suffering and harm and also for a lot of love and compassion, which is one reason why we avoid it. And sometimes it's best to say, I don't want to go anywhere near it or... We try to avoid it at all costs or suppress it, and um, I think we miss out on some of the gifts. Anyway, that's the that's the direction that I'd like to head, and and I'm going to make it a bit personal. You know, I'm not like some sort of anger expert here, um, like an anger researcher or something. Uh, I want to share some some things from David White around anger. I want to talk share some things from Bill Plotkin, one of my teachers around anger. I'd like to talk about it in a social sphere and also in a personal uh, sphere. And I want to speak personally about my relationship with anger, which is um, has been and is at times stunted. I'm not sure. Um, there was a time in my life when I would have said and been completely convinced there's not an angry bone in my body. and But under the, under the surface, um, it was... Um, uh, I don't know, like a like a vo- uh, like a volcano or something, or it, at least um, a geyser, <laughs> um, just brewing beneath the surface and not not knowing how to have a relationship with it. And that's part of growing up. After all, this podcast is called Hints and Guesses, and because that's all I'm trying to do is offer hints and guesses, and and sometimes quote and popularize other people's hints and guesses. 
because growing up is freaking hard. Growing up spiritually and, and psychologically and um, growing up period is freaking hard. And, and oftentimes I think like something like anger, um, it's important just to look at directly. Sometimes we can avoid sort of the everyday components of the spiritual life and favor um, grand philosophical or theological ideas. It's, it's, in other words, it's much better to hang out in the clouds and um, to fly like Icarus toward the sun. And um, yeah, I guess that's appealing. And I often do that. I want to fly way above the issue. And so I, I want to try to come back down to earth. You know, the, the sun is at times melts the wax in my own Icarus-like wings and I crash to the ground. And, and that crashing is like a, a wake up, like, okay, back to earth, back to the everyday. And what's happening? What's happening in my ordinary everyday interactions um, with real people in real time? So anyway, um, yeah, let's, let me think. How, how might I begin? Maybe um, the first thing that's worth saying is probably obvious to all of us, that anger is natural. It wells up from a deep place. We experience anger. We don't choose it would be the first sort of observation. It's an emotional response to the world. And we don't get to say oftentimes or ever uh, this kind of um, outpouring from the heart, from, from the inner labyrinth of the psyche, if you want to put it that way. It happens unto us, much like lust or fear or fear is a good one. Maybe fear and, and anger, they should be separated a bit, but they, but they can feel instinctual in that sense. Up from the basement it comes, usually at the most uh, inconvenient times. And, and that's part of the reason why it's difficult to talk about, especially if you come from like a religious or Christian background where you're told something like, it's a problem. But that's, it's like, then you're in this terrible place. You feel immediately then a kind of shame that comes with it. And the shame says something like, you shouldn't feel this way. And I know sometimes sometimes uh, shame gets a bad rap, but um, especially in its most oppressive um, sense. But shame often, you know, pokes around in our values, like our values have been violated, and it, and it, and it begins to to probe in that, and really raise a question, something like, have my values been violated? And when anger all of a sudden wells up, and in any kind of context, it can be quickly followed by, and that's my problem, and, and a desire to push it down into the basement or to latch onto it because it feels good. After all, it feels good to feel feelings. <laughs> and to ride that wave without a lot of consciousness, just because the energetic wave of anger uh, makes us feel alive. So... The first thing to say about it is it's natural. And the second is to kind of ask a question 
then what does it serve? And I, and I want to start off by with a quote from David White because it's such a provocative quote, and I'll probably I'll probably return to it or some other David White stuff by the end of the podcast. But the, what David White says is this: that anger is the purest form of care. Anger is the purest form of care. Now that already, I mean, that's a radical phrase. I mean, I was going to say no one talks like that. Well, David White obviously does. Not that many people talk about that. What do you mean it's a form of care? It tells us something like we care. We care about the way the world is. Or we care that the world isn't the way we want it to be, which pokes around in some of our ideals and dreams and hopes and, and, and of course, injustices. It ought not to be this way. And then, so if, let's say, for example, one part of you, and I think deep and subtle, is saying it ought not to be this way, and you experience the feeling of anger, it ought not to be this way. You experience the feeling of anger. Then it's followed by a layer of judgment, which is, I shouldn't feel angry. It actually separates us from that initial, uh, I guess, mostly unconscious experience of an injustice or the fact that we care. And that's one of the things, I mean, that, in other words, anger, believe it or not, exposes our vulnerabilities. I know when we experience someone else's anger, especially if it's mixed with a lot of fear and rage and in its worst forms violence, um, we're not feeling uh, the other's vulnerability. We're, we're, uh, we want to stand at arm's length. But, but to see someone, even in a state of rage, as experiencing utter vulnerability, it makes a lot of sense. And what is one way of uh, we might experience our vulnerabilities on the emotional level? It's through anger. We care. Life is fragile. Life is vulnerable. I'm vulnerable. The world ought not to be the way the world is. And we experience, I think, maybe you could even say primally and, and, and instinctually at times, anger. Of course, we might feel other things given all these circumstances, but... Um, I think it's a common experience to feel something like anger. So I always want to say that then it has a place. It's like one of the things that I've learned from depth psychology, just as kind of an armchair uh, student of some of the great, uh, greatest uh, contributors to depth psychology, is that it all belongs. I mean, that's, that's a phrase from Richard Rohr, everything belongs. And oftentimes the holding of poles is the the path and the inv invitation of integration and transformation, meaning not the elimination of poles. So I don't know what the pole opposite pole of anger might be. Maybe it's joy. I don't know. You could maybe contemplate that. What's the opposite pole of anger? But it's the opposite of something. And the the holding of the poles is where all the magic happens. It's not the elimination of anger in the in choosing joy, for example. Um, or it's not the elimination of joy to choose anger. It's something like these poles are real. They're real in the world and they're real in me. 
And my capacity to bring greater consciousness to the polls often opens up the kind of what's sometimes uh, called the third way, where, where both have a place and where we experience our feelings and emotions and not hijacked by them um, or uh, suppressing them or repressing them, but letting them have their way in more mature and life-giving ways. So I'll come back to, to David White, but maybe that's just my opening point. Anger is quite natural. And we even know that from just a quick survey of, of religious uh, images where, I mean, take the Greek gods and goddesses or those of India, um, and there's always a place for anger among the gods. And uh, maybe one way of reading that is that be, one way of, of one, I, I guess I should say, the reason why that's the case is because anger is part of the human psyche. And there's a very natural relationship between what's in us and what we project onto the heavens, what we put onto the gods and goddesses. And I think it, to a certain extent, that's why you and I'm, um, that's why you find Yahweh in the Old Testament expressing anger. And it's there. I don't care what kind of clever, oftentimes, there's a, there's a whole, among liberal-ish uh, theologians um, or armchair theologians and pastors and churches, there's an attempt to try to clean up the Bible all the time. Well, actually, God is not angry. There's, not, there's no way God can be angry. Well, just read the stories. God is angry. And the question is, what is he angry about? Or the question is, if anger is the purest form of care, you might ask, what does God care about? And now that's not quite the same thing as saying then that's not quite the same thing as saying definitely speaking metaphysically, there's a being up there in the clouds and he's really pissed off. Remember I said a second ago, oftentimes what's in our own psyches, we project onto the heavens. So we project that onto Yahweh or the God of the Old Testament or something. But one of the questions I have, I guess I'm speaking about the psychology of religion is what place does it have? And why, why um, did, did we preserve that? Why not just clean that up over time, you know? Um, but it gets preserved and you have these kind of poles, you know? back to to joy and anger or whatever you have these uh these poles in the deity itself in the deity of Yahweh particularly in the in the in the Hebrew Bible so not a very cleaned up god you know you're not even sure what this Yahweh's name is it's like what is it Yahweh and then there's and then there's also Elohim and then there's um Yahweh Elohim and you don't even know the, you don't even know who this god is i mean just in a most basic 101 uh, Hebrew reading of the scriptures, you're not sure. Um, it's very hard to nail down, which only uh, leads to a kind of greater mystery. So what's my main point? It's in our religious traditions, which which is a way of saying we must deal with it. We must deal with it. And I guess I'm largely saying right now in ourselves, what is it? Does it have any hidden gifts, which I'm suggesting it does? Where does it go terribly wrong? So maybe those are some big opening statements. Um, the other thing I might want to say, well, maybe I should um, give you uh, personal stuff first. I was raised in a home where 
anger was among, if not the top, sort of sin. The one thing that wasn't allowed. And I'm not sure why that's the case. I mean, you know, that, that, that in and of itself would be a complicated question because it's, it's a generational question. It's a cultural question. It's also probably a question of personal disposition. But definitely very early on, I received the message that if you feel anger, that is a problem. That is wrong. That is a sin. You don't um, do nothing out of anger. Um, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Um, deal with it or get rid of it. And that phrase, like, don't let the sun go down on your anger. I mean, uh, in the Baptist fundamentalist circles that I was in, that was taken very literally. Like, if you were feeling anger, you have to to do everything you can before the sun goes down, or if the sun does go down, to not go to sleep. You know, the number of stories I heard of of couples staying up all night, you know, like in a, in a knockdown, drag out um, uh, path to reconciliation, which, I mean, I mean, talk about all the, the wrong formulas, or talk, talk about all the wrong ingredients for a formula of, of reconciliation, which is staying up late, you're tired, you're emotional, and you're insisting, we must work this out before I can go to sleep. I mean, that's like, it's like throwing gasoline on a fire, you know, it's like that scene in Spanglish, where um, Adam Sandler finds out his wife is having an affair, and he comes and sort of confronts her in the bedroom and she's just like going absolutely nuts, just wailing and crying and saying, no, you have to, we have to talk and talk and talk and talk and we're going to stay up all night. We're going to work this out. And he just says, I'm leaving, which is probably the smartest thing uh, to do, to let the sun go down in, in that sense. But anyway, uh, maybe the Bible is trying to say, you have to look at it. Um, you can't ignore it. Maybe that's another kind of interpretation of don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't let it go um, back down into the underworld. But it might have something to teach you. It might have a, a, a path that it wants to take you on, to open you up to greater consciousness, to greater forms of care, which again, back to David White's definition, well, it's not a definition, he just says anger is the purest form of care. So um, any case, that was kind of the household I grew up in. And and I never really saw my parents very angry, especially my dad. Um, he he was kind of a light, sort of funny guy anyway, and liked to make jokes and liked to keep things light. And every once in a while, I'd see him express anger, usually like in house projects, which he was really bad at. I'm bad at them, but he was even worse. And, uh, you know, he would occasionally, in anger, you know, say junk. That was like his... <laughs> his his like uh irish baptist form of cussing and you know and you could see i could see it even as a kid like ooh like ooh you know you want to you want to avoid his his mood when he's can't get something uh drilled into the wall you know <laughs> that kind of thing but mostly um especially when it came to dealing with the difficulties of being a pastor, and it is hard. I mean, I know from personal experience, it's um, being a pastor is tough because of the level of projection and expectations that you have on yourself and and that other people have on you, um, because of the kind of cultural role um, that you 
kind of post you are holding and all the expectations that come with that and and illusions around what what a pastor is. And meanwhile, even if people are mean, nasty, aggressive, unkind, and dangerous, you're expected to be sort of above all that and and be kind and um, and not get angry. And I think that's very much like something my dad attempted to do. And and the same with my mom. Um, she was maybe more fearful, but but afraid that if anger had its way, it might burn the house down. And that's always the the fear I think with allowing strong any kind of strong instinctual emotion to surface. And so it was kept at bay, which um, leads to, in my personal experience, and also in the in the household I was in, to a lot of resentment, because if anger is natural and you're trying to keep a lid on it, the only place it has to go is into resentments, low-level, passive-aggressive resentments, where you actually are angry, but you can't admit it to yourself. And that kind of passive-aggressive um, sort of was not just like sort of in my family, but maybe more broadly in the church culture that I was in. And, uh, and I, I guess I internalized this and in the sense of I didn't want to be angry. And if I did something wrong when I was a kid, we were told like immediately you have to ask for forgiveness. And then um, if someone asks you for forgiveness, you must immediately say you're forgiven. And then we put that baby to bed. It's over. It's done. Which is odd because even the natural outflowing of strong emotions isn't allowed. You got to shut that puppy off because, again, it's going to burn the house down. So um, say you're sorry, you know, right now, and then totally forgive them, and then we move on. That was kind of the um, the way things were dealt with. So, like I said, I, I think I internalized this, and I, I really thought of anger as being a real problem. And and by the time I was in high school, <laughs> this is where things get kind of kind of weird. I was in um, in kind of a, like the drug druggy scene, you know. Um, on I had a, a 1989 Ford Ranger, uh, two tone pinstripe, black and gray, uh, four cylinder, uh, two wheel drive, real beast. And uh, I had on the back of of my sliding window, sliding glass window, also great feature in the Ford Ranger, um, a sticker, are you kind? Are you kind, man? Which is a line from the Grateful Dead. Like, um, what song is it? Um, come here. Uncle Tom's Band by the Riverside. What I want to know is, are you kind? That's a line in the in the Grateful Dead song. And so it's kind of like, you know, like, are you going to share your drugs with me is the way I always took it. But, but also as a general vibe, like, dude, man, so much anger in the world, just like so much aggression and violence. And I'm just totally chill, you know, just like, just keep it kind, man. Um, but if you were to also meet me in high school and you weren't my friend, probably you would say, that guy's an asshole. So on the surface, I was all just like, man, just keeping the peace and um, sort of sending out the hippie vibe with my overalls um, and my tie-dye shirts and my Birkenstocks. 
And when I wasn't wearing my grunge gear, so I was maybe a bit confused, <laughs> um, my grunge kit and my, and my Grateful Dead kit, uh, they sort of like <laughs> this awkward relationship. But anyway, um, on the surface, and I think if you would have asked me, are you angry? I would have said no. But the truth is, now I would say, I was not only angry, like it was boiling. Uh, and w- who was I angry at? I was angry at the freaking world, at the church, at my dad, at my, uh, at the Bible, at, um, at rules, at, you know, just start going down the list, the, um, girls and um, sports and, and, and my inability to be, you know, at the uh, number one, but um, I didn't get picked last for things, but I definitely didn't get picked first. And I was angry about that. I was small. I, I'm, you know, I'm Irish. And, and uh, I was, when, when my parents moved to West Michigan, I was just around Dutch people who are gigantic, you know, and I felt like a little puny uh, wuss. So um, yeah, I was angry. And, but I, I swear, I didn't see it as that. And so anger for me was much more like shadow stuff. And I probably talked about that if, you li- if you've listened to my shadow podcasts. Um, it's very much in the shadow. And what's a definition of the shadow? What you don't know about yourself. So for me, that's where it went. It went underground. It went into, it was repressed and depressed and, and hidden away. And I would flatly deny it. For other people, it wasn't like that. It was, um, you know, it might be much more on the surface and people might even know you as an angry person, which, which means you have to deal with it slightly differently. But for me, it was in the shadow and I, I couldn't even see it. And then every once in a while, it would leak out and I'd get into a fight or, um, you know, something very minor. Somebody cuts me off in traffic and then I'm like, you know, F you and double middle finger, you know, like, wait a minute. What happened to the sticker on the back of your car, man? Are you kind? No, I'm obviously not that, you know, asshole cut me off in traffic. So, um, again, <laughs> just giving you, a, maybe you don't want a little window into, into my high school life and, and I don't know, early, and college too. Um, but I'm, I'm just offering that and because I think it's important to, to look back on those transitional years, because I want to say something about adolescence in general that comes from Bill Plotkin, because um, anger in kind of adolescent development is a given, especially it's like the channels for hormones and emotions are blown wide open. And, and anybody who has teenagers, like I have two right now, knows there's like, they're just wide open and, um, and one day it's just, you know, your kid is all over the map and you wonder like, you know, to whom does this kid belong? Where, 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 where are they coming from? You know? Um, and so anger is obviously a part of sort of uh, natural adolescent development. In fact, let me um, pull out my sort of Bill Plotkin notes here from uh, nature and the human soul. Um, so we don't need to get into his whole model. But in Nature and the Human Soul, he has a kind of eight-stage nature-based um, developmental wheel, which is what he calls it. Maybe I should do a whole podcast on it. I've thought about it before. I've actually thought about trying to interview him um, because I'm in the, the guide training program at Animus Valley Institute, which he uh, founded, and I, I see him every once in a while. So I'll, 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 I don't know if he'll bite on that, but um, maybe I'll try to get him on the podcast at, at a certain point. But um, <clears throat> so in what he calls stage three development, which you don't need to know the stages, uh, is, is 
the time of adolescence and the time where you're most struggling for two things, social acceptance and authenticity. And those two things are, are, are in big time tension, an authentic sense of self. And I need that self to be socially acceptable, which creates all kinds of problems. It's like a, it's a like crazy fiery time to be alive. He also goes on to say that, um, Many of us and most Westerners get stuck at stage three. I don't care if they're 30 or 40 or 60, they can be still at stage three psycho-spiritually, you could say, um, stuck on the level of conformity and, and really foregoing uh, authenticity, but getting stuck on the level of conformity. But anyway, um, the big pressure and cultural pressure, especially in an egocentric society, is is to conform to something. And meanwhile, as anger is activated, and he, and he says oftentimes that anger, especially in adolescence, is related to abandonment of various kinds. It could also be overwhelmment, the other very strong thing, but let's just take abandonment for, for a moment. And who have we been abandoned by? Well, when you're an adolescent, it feels like everybody, it could be anybody, it could be your parents, it could be your caregivers, it could be your teachers, it could be your coach, it could be your friends, it could be the world, it could be fill in the blank. We all have, have experienced some kind of abandonment and often that activates the very natural emotion of anger. And the question is, what do we do with that? And interestingly enough, he says, there are three sort of archetypal expressions that the conformist takes. And I'll just give them to you, the rebel, the victim, and the, the princess or prince. And the rebel, which is maybe more of the path that I chose, or choosing is maybe the wrong way of putting it, the, the one that I found myself in, um, was a way of, was nobody's going to tell me what to do. And, um, and a stick it to the man, the double middle finger, the, the Kurt Cobain image on the inside of um, of what's the, like, all I can see is a little baby with a hook and a, and a, and a dollar underwater. Uh, what is that? I can't even think of the name of that album, which is just like crazy. But if you open that album up, Kurt Cobain is standing there, you know, and he's just like flipping off the camera, you know, or Johnny Cash flipping off the camera. That's the way of the rebel, which is I'm angry. <laughs> um, I don't, maybe it's, it's, it's a couple things. I don't really know who I am. I'm angry and therefore F the man and rich people and people in power and people in the church. And for me, Jerry Falwell, fundamentalism. Um, meanwhile, pretending in my, in my case to also be kind, you know, like kind of in a schizophrenic sense. Um, I don't mean that clinically, just like, you know, um, the way we're using it culturally, which maybe is unfair. So I take that back. Um, two-faced. I was two-faced. It's probably the simple way of saying that. So that's the way of the, the rebel. And, and oftentimes um, disenfranchised people of various kinds and forms, um, even socioeconomically, can choose the way of the rebel. Um, the, the world doesn't care about me, and so I don't care about the world. And, and, and I'll take advantage of people out there because no one's watching out for me. That's much more the way of the rebel. The other um, more passive um, path is that of the victim. So the victim also, I don't know who I am and I'm angry, but um, 
it's because of so-and-so. And there's a sense of needing to be rescued or saved or um, a lot of finger pointing, a lot of blame and a lot of passivity. That's the victim as an archetypal uh, sub-personality, you might call it. I'm not talking about, um, maybe I should say something because the word victim is, is quite loaded. So oftentimes people do experience a victimization of various kinds, socioeconomically or much worse kinds, and you can fill in the blank. And yes, that happened to them. They are a victim. That's true. But that's something slightly different than being an inhabited by a, a persona, which is what we're talking about here. The rebel is a persona. The victim, as I'm using it here, is a persona. And every time you bring something up to this person, it's like, well, I'm glad things are going uh, well for you, but I never had those opportunities, you know? And it's, it's that kind of, um, uh, it's kind of possession in a way. The third is the prince or the princess. And this is a little more popular in the upper, um, you know, middle class and upper class society. I'm not, I got that from Bill Plotkin, so I'm not just... That's something he says, and those are big uh, generalities. So, of course, there are exceptions to the rule, but um, it's still, I don't know who I am. I really don't know who I am, especially if I'm um, the the child of a celebrity or I am a celebrity. I don't know, I, but I really don't know who I am. And I'm angry, but I deserve something. I deserve to be treated in a certain way. I deserve to drive certain things. In fact, I've played the game so well on Instagram and... Um, that I deserve something because of this. I, I, I put this personality out there for the world to consume and therefore I'm owed something. And a lot of princes and a lot of princesses in our pathologically adolescent culture right now. The reason why I'm bringing that up is because according to Bill Plotkin, there's a subcurrent of anger and all that. It's really, I don't know who I am, I'm angry, and I'm finding my social identity in these various roles, rebel, victim, and princess. And actually, I mean, just to be fair, there's nothing actually wrong with that. I mean, it's just something that happens to us. The question is, how do we grow up out of that? We're all going to find ourselves at different stages or at different places in life, finding our way into, into these three things. And I I've, I've certainly can speak from experience, rebel, victim, and princess. No, a prince or a princess, whatever. Um, I've found myself very much in places of deserving this or that, very much in the place of of blaming the other and feeling uh, victimized, and I didn't get the chance that somebody else had, um, or very much the rebel, like, you know, I'm going to stick it to the man, and I don't care about e even the moral, um, the, the violation of, of morals and ethics in, in my rebellion. I don't care. Um, because they're made up by the man anyway, that kind of thing. I found myself um, expressing my own adolescent uh, persona in all three of these ways, but primarily probably for me in the form of, of a rebel. So what's happening is that you are betraying your authenticity and, um, and, you're, and you end up long-term betraying the path of authenticity, which requires two things, tremendous humility. I don't know who I am, and I really mean it. I really mean I don't know who I am, and I, and I, wanna, I want to dive in and, and discover really who I am, which puts you firmly in the camp of vulnerabilities. You can't say, I don't know who I am without feeling like you're out of your shell, like you just crawled out like you're a turtle out of your shell and you're completely naked and exposed. And who wants to feel that? Especially in 
from psychologically speaking, in, in a kind of adolescent phase. We want to avoid vulnerabilities and we're also drawn to them. So it's like, um, it's a real, it can be a real mixture. But um, in any case, that's, that's the way he talks about it socially. And, you know, when you look out at our culture and you find rebels, victims, and uh, princes and princesses, you can be pretty sure anger is just beneath the surface. And um, I can think of whole groups and ideologies and memes and social groups that inhabit these collectively, these kind of sub-personalities that I'm describing. And definitely anger is right there. So um, that's on the one hand. On the other hand, the other thing that Bill Plotkin talks about is what he calls mature anger. And this is at a much later stage. We're not talking about uh, psychologically in the developmental wheel, the stage of adolescence. We're talking about a maturing elder. So what I'm about to say about anger here fits in the category of elder. And really, how many elders do you actually know right now, if you're really honest? So um, he says that um, the mature elder, hold on, let me, let me find a passage here. So he puts it, um, I'm, I'm paraphrasing a little bit here, but he says that the mature elder is really responding to unconscious people, which is you have to be mature to um, even see that there are unconscious people. You find this with Jesus hanging on the cross who's, when he says, forgiven, they don't know what they're doing. That is a response to unconscious people. They're unconsciously crucifying Jesus, you might say. So anyway, he says, maturing is, is, is a response to unconscious people who are causing suffering. And, and we could be talking about suffering in a small scale, family, relationships, work, a boss, a coworker, a colleague, or the grandest kinds of crimes against humanity, um, or um, destroying oceans and waterways and air by, um, by unchecked pollution. The mature elder, in this sense, is angry about those things. And angry... Um, and is feeling anger because of unconscious people who cause suffering. And, but he says what happens with that kind of mature anger is that it comes with cl three things, clarity, constructive action, and compassion. And, you know, you can ask yourself, <laughs> when I'm feeling what some people call, quote, righteous anger, um, or better said, mature anger, does it come with clarity? I see what's really going on. And probably with that kind of clarity comes um, some, some conscious awareness of one's own capacities for these things, that I'm not um, somehow righteous and, and would never stoop to this level. So maybe you need some contact with your own shadow. I, I too have these capacities. Um, so clarity and clarity about what, what's going on, followed by constructive action. So here's what I'd like to do about it to, to minimize the suffering in the world. And that is shot through with a, with a fair amount of compassion. And the motivation for the action is, is compassion, being with passion and, um, and, 
and feeling with the other instead of against the other. So, you know, again, um, maybe this is a fair warning to me and others. If you're angry about a particular issue or injustice, some self-examination. Is this cl bringing clarity? Um, do I have some clarity on this? Do I really? Can I really see what's going on? Do I have any? Is there anything I can constructively do about this? And, I, and honestly, is this coming from a place of compassion or not? I mean, these are are pretty tough questions. Um. So maybe maybe that's enough uh, said along the lines of the possibility of mature anger, but. To come all the way back around to the Jesus story, which is what um, my Patreon uh, supporter threw in there, this this image of Jesus in the temple making a whip and yelling at people, saying, "My house called a house of prayer for all nations, and you turn into a den of robbers." We can ask, with you know, I mean, it's easy to play armchair, you know, interpreter or armchair uh, psychoanalyst or something. Uh, of of Jesus two thousand years later through a text that's been edited and and. Um, so forth and so on. Um, but we'll give an attempt here. So Jesus goes into the temple. He's in Jerusalem at the, the high uh, holy day or near the high holy day of Passover, a very contentious time in and of itself, um, and, a, and a time period when you're most um, obviously expressing freedom from being a captive in Egypt, so um, being liberated from oppression. And especially if you're feeling oppressed, say by the Roman Empire, this feast is going to really, you know, stir up those those longings for for freedom and autonomy and um, and breaking the chains of oppression and so forth. So Jesus is in the is in the holy city of Jerusalem during this time of year. And he goes in the temple. And what's interesting is that we don't know what exactly what he's mad about because it says he sees the money changers in the temple. Well, according to the the Torah itself, you have to change money in the temple. And in fact, there was one whole area of the temple called the Stoa where um, that was, it was like the bank. You had to do it. You, in order to perform certain um, sacrifices, you needed to exchange your currency because people are traveling from all over the world and there was a certain temple tax and I won't get into into the weeds any more than that, but so that would be—it's kind of odd. Well, he's if he's mad about the money changing or money changers, that's you know that's needed. So it's a bit obscure, but we can hear in what he says maybe some reasons for his anger. We can ask, is it mature or not? So he says he quotes from the prophets. So he's inhabiting this kind of prophetic. Um, way of being in the world. And he says, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. So that's a line from Isaiah, I believe. And so maybe there, there's a little clue in that. Maybe there was some sense of too much insider language here or too much insider um, boundaries. And it really was not a house of prayer for all nations. It was a house of prayer for a few. Sounds like something a prophet would do, get mad about that. And then he says, but you've turned into a den of robbers, which is from Jeremiah. And um, Jeremiah, you can read Jeremiah chapter 7 if you want the full context. It's actually quite profound, but I'm not going to go into the whole, to the whole thing. But you're, you're robbing people. You're coming up into the temple, which is exactly what Jeremiah says, in the temple, the temple, the temple. But meanwhile, you shed the blood of the innocent. That's a line from Jeremiah. So these are major, heavy-hitting 
critiques. And apparently, Jesus is angry enough to whip other people with a cord. So he's not messing around. It's not like a metaphor. And what's interesting from a critical historical point of view is that this story is in all four Gospels. It's a little different in the Gospel of John. He sort of puts it at a different time in Jesus' life, which he's prone to do, reorder things. But um, in, in any case, from a critical point of view, a historian, and many do, say something like, well, the reason why Jesus is arrested is because of this public act. If he would have kept his mouth shut and not gotten all angry at the temple establishment and started whipping people and screaming, he they probably would have left him alone. So you could say on one level, this, this paved the way for his uh, eventual arrest, sort of fake trial, and then crucifixion. So um, very uh, interesting story. So I think we can ask, was there clarity? Um, was there constructive action? And was this an act of compassion? And if we go all the way back to David White's definition and say, anger is the purest form of care. See, now ask that question. What does Jesus care about? And, and by activating and pursuing and allowing the care, which puts you in a more vulnerable place, like it's once you care for someone or something, you're much more vulnerable. It's much easier to stay closed up and inside your shell and not express any care or love or because you're more protected, but he exposes himself to the vulnerabilities of care so much so that he attacks with words and action the political religious establishment in the temple and makes some pretty bold predictions. So you could say, you could guess, what does he seem to care about? That the temple is an inclusive place, seems to be behind his phrase, and that they're robbing people um, it's a den of robbery. And if we take Jeremiah's line a little further, and they're also sort of shedding the blood of the innocent, you know, which might be a way of symbolically saying, um, you're taking advantage of the things that the prophets most care about, the poor, the widow, the alien, the orphan, and the foreigner. So how dare this happen in a place that you say God lives? You know, I, I love that. Temple sounds so fancy in, in contemporary words, but in, in Hebrew, it's just the house, you know? In the house of God, there, it, it's become a place of exclusiveness um, and of robbery, where the poor, the widow, the alien, the foreigner don't have a place, don't have a voice, don't belong. And Jesus takes, you could say, um, some uh, constructive action to make a big public scene to expose this hypocrisy and irony. And he suffers the consequences, which maybe is, is often happens with mature elders. After all, we just got done cel uh, celebrating Martin Luther King Day. And, um, and that kind of courageous action in the world, that kind of um, threefold, we could say, uh, clarity, constructive action, and compassion got him killed. And you start going down the list of mature elders who have accessed their anger, we could say, and channeled that, would be maybe one way of saying it. In mature ways, they often are killed and or marginalized or sidelined or ridiculed or mocked. Um, 
and so it's par for the course. So be careful <laughs> it, lest you care too much, which is one reason why we, we put it underground. Now I'm saying all that, uh, again, maybe I should reiterate my warning. Just because you're, you're angry about a particular issue doesn't mean you're very mature. And I, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm talking to myself. I'm angry about a lot of things, climate change and, um, you know, the, all, the myriad of injustices that are going on in our, in our Western world and around the globe. And, um, but just to assume just because I'm angry and I feel some anger about that, that I have clarity about what's really going on and I, I'm following it up with constructive action in, in the milieu of compassion. No, I'm not. So I have a, I have a long ways to go. And which brings me back to the question, what then do you do? with anger. What is the hidden gift? What's it inviting us into? And here's where I want to be kind of really it, reiterate, this is called hints and guesses. I'm not telling you what to do. I'm offering a few hints and guesses. And I guess I'll start with the personal side and, and, and end with David White. So when I um, first started down the path of self-discovery and, and in a more conscious and, and authentic way, meaning I got a counselor or a therapist and um, I started reading books and I started admitting I don't know who I am. And um, one of the things that started happening to me simultaneously is that I found myself angry at certain people at work. And I've expressed this in my podcast around the shadow, but um, one of the things that happened to me is I was super angry with someone I worked with because, in my words, I found them to be an inauthentic person. They said one thing in one room, and in another room they said something else. And I complained about this person behind their back in other rooms. In other words, I was engaging in the very behavior that I seemed to so righteously get angry about, um, you know, to my, you know, behind closed doors. And when I, when I begin to, to allow myself to feel that anger rather than to shut it off or to ask for forgiveness and say, hey, man, I felt angry toward, anger toward you. Will you forgive me? And he's like, yeah, man, I forgive you. End of story. You know, to say, what is it that I'm actually angry about? And where do I feel this anger? Where do I feel it in my body? Um, and I, I felt it more in the gut. Like I, I, I get twisted up. And I could feel it in my jaw. And sometimes I would shiver. I mean, when I'm really activated like this and, and it feels, I can feel the tension and sometimes the shivering that, that comes with it. And, um, and I begin to go very slowly on the path of, of asking, what is that showing me about me? <laughs> Not about him or the world at large, and it took me a while, but I started to say, the reason why I'm so angry that he's not authentic is because I'm not living in an authentic way. I'm, it, it, I'm in a work environment where I'm saying one thing to one person and I'm saying one thing to another person, which is, in a sense, one of the things that led me to the path of just getting out of being an evangelical megachurch pastor, saying, I don't want to live like this. Not that that place is the problem, the church is the problem, or Mars Hill is the problem where I worked. No, I have a problem in this environment, and um, I have to choose a more authentic, authentic path if I'm going to grow up. The other side um, was, 
had to do with the golden aspect of this. So I was doing this again. I told you um, a lot of my anger stuff has been the shadow where I've tried to suppress it and keep it under underground, um, especially sort of post high school. I probably should have mentioned that like, um, you know, like kind of stick it to the man kind of Pearl Jam um, energetic vibe that I kind of loved to feel in high school. I thought by the time I got into my 20s, I need to be nicer, you know. I'm going to go I'm this the religion of niceness and that I'm going to I'm going to push that down which means the anger went even further down. And but when I'm around angry people, um I sometimes am envious. Like even my wife has what I would say easier access with anger and that's one of the things that I find attractive about her and about other people. Um which sounds strange I'm attracted to anger but I'm attracted to that kind of energetic life force that seems to just come through and sometimes say the way things are. Um one of the things that James Finley says I think profoundly he says um let's see anger is the angel with the sword of truth. God. It's the angel with the sword of truth which sometimes I think what he's saying is every once in a while this angel, um, anger, cuts through things like a knife. So if we, if we turn this back around to David White's quote here, anger is the purest form of care and ask, what do I care about? If I start asking questions like this, I care about authenticity, but I have to find it myself. That's part of the shadow work. Or... I care about the truth, which sometimes cuts through like a knife. And part of the invitation is, is instead of envying that in other people, allowing myself to feel the anger and also feel the vulnerability and also feel the care. In other words, this kind of anger, the hidden gift of anger, leads us closer to a word like care if we let it. And that's, I mean, maybe that's easier said than done. Yeah, it is. Because um, when we feel vulnerable, it's sometimes the case that we turn into a wrecking ball and make a mess of things. And our inability to contain it physically, you know, can, can wreak havoc. And sometimes we need direct care, especially, you know, I'm talking about, I'm speaking personally that I, I tend to suppress it, try to keep it down. But for those who it's much more on the surface and and sometimes much more reactive and dangerous you know you might need some some professional help um feeling it more fully um and also coming up with i know it's kind of a, a nasty word but coping strategies you sometimes need coping strategies or maybe you could just say strategies for um allowing it to pass through oneself without turning to violence or rage or aggression or its um, darker expressions. So in other words, you might need to get some help. You might need some anger management in that sense. But that's not to turn anger itself into the enemy. It's to ask the question, what do you really care about? And which is another way of saying, what do you really love which, let me read you another David White line, anger in its pure state is the measure of the way we are implicated in the world 
and made vulnerable through love in all its specifics. So you love something specific. That's why sometimes I don't even like the phrase, love your neighbor. Who? Which one? You know? Specifically, which in the specific case leads us into a space of vulnerability, potential hurt, openness, and care. <laughs> so I don't know um, what I'm out, uh, else I might add about the uh, personal ways that I've begun to own some of my own uh, feelings of anger and, and from time to time let them take me on a path. And except I think probably I want to mention a few things about my dad because I don't know if you would ask me in, in college or post-college, early married life, um, if I was angry with my dad, I would have said, no, I'm not angry with my dad, and which is kind of odd because that's like the archetypal setup. Um, don't forget, Genesis says, in the myth of Genesis, it says, um, man and woman will, will leave their father and mother. And I think that's a, a, that's a archetypal and psychological statement that you have to leave home. And at times that means a no, no, I'm not going to walk in your footsteps. I'm going to create my own world. I'm not here to please you. And I'm not here to live out your unlived life and your fantasies. And away you go. That's called growing up. It's called um, the first step to growing up. And so maybe I was a little slow in this respect. And it took me a long time to access even anger with my dad. And who doesn't feel angry at their parents? Um, that's part of what I'm saying. It's, it's, it's part of the natural part of growing up. But um, and when my dad got sick, my dad was diagnosed with the ALS, it complicated the problem because how can you get angry at someone who has a hard time walking or speaking or eating? But that's when it started. And talk about shame. Talk about feeling embarrassed. Talk about, I mean, there were times when, yeah, maybe I was angry at the disease or the fact that he had the disease, but sometimes I was just angry at him. And that seems so unwarranted. Why not roll the clock clock back 10 years previously? Well, I don't know. I wasn't, um, I was still much more unconscious and, and I wasn't, I didn't have access to what was under the surface. Um, and all of a sudden the disease, and I think that's part of when you, when you have a loved one that is facing a terminal illness and they're going to die. And you know they're going to die. I mean, we all know everybody's going to die, but there's something about just being with someone you love and you see the end. You see mortality every day. And with my dad, I could see him becoming more and more like a ghost, like a skeleton, as ALS sort of um, ate away at his muscles. And... You'd think, oh, I'd feel bad or more compassion, but actually the anger that had been there started surfacing. And sometimes I was just angry at him even for having the disease, as if it was like somehow his fault, which it wasn't. And I didn't even think it was his fault, but it was there anyway. And 
you know, probably some of you who have been with loved ones that have been ill, you know what I'm talking about. You know when those unsavory feelings come and you're like, oh God, um, there it is. But in any case, it started to come up and um, I can remember a couple of times having a feeling that uh, in addition to feeling anger, feeling something like, I don't want to live like this. And almost being angry at my dad for not living a full life, but living a half a life. And and same kind of thing that I was talking about with um, this colleague at work. I s- started to feel, oh, um, am I going to live half a life? And the anger, which has a lot of energy, was around something I care about. I don't want to, what's Mary Oliver say? I don't want to end up having only visited this world. God, that makes me cry. I don't want to end up having only visited this world. Um, I want to live as much as I'm, and I don't mean a, a cleaned up, pretty spiritually enlightened life. I mean just... A full life, an engaged life, not half a life, not visiting this planet. And and that's what I mean about the path of anger. What do I care about living a full life um, in all of its complexities and unanswered questions and facing up um, and taking responsibility for the ambiguities of life and as much as I possibly can. Yeah, that's um, the purest form of care. (laughs) So, um, yeah, these are tough things to think about, really. And to mull over because, you know, like like any real depth work, it, it kind of, it happens like the seasons. Like, when does fall start and when does it end? That's kind of what it feels like when you begin to ask questions like, what are the hidden gifts of my angers? And, and I start getting closer. And it's not that popular of an idea. There are one gazillion coping strategies, including counselors and coaches who want to talk you out of it, who want to give you ways to avoid the anger and the pain. Um, in part, you don't blame them because, as we know, anger can can wreak havoc on the world. It can burn the house down. Um, but it can also be placed into the fireplace and heat the room. And that's what it can feel like. It has that kind of vitality and thus bringing clarification. Now, speaking of the mature anger, clarification, um, some action, and some compassion in the world. So, um, and I think the same, I mean, maybe I can just speak more generally about the church quote, because I went through whole seasons where I was angry at the church. I was angry at theology, theologians, pastors, Jerry Falwell, Liberty University, where I went, um, you know, my early Christian education, my Sunday school teachers, but I would have just said the church and, and, you know, I don't feel that way anymore. I don't feel the anger. I'm actually just... I don't feel it in quite the same way. Um, 
I'm, I'm, I'm feeling some of the gifts of my own tradition really for the first time. Um, but my point, my point right now is if I put it back in these terms of, of a purest form of care, well, what do I care about? I care about things that are helpful to people and communities that are accepting of people and a spirituality that is authentic and life-giving and courageous and, um, and generative. And when you don't see that in, quote, the church, yeah, you get angry. But instead of then just turning into a rebel and saying, um, you know, down with the system, or turning into a victim, well, I was raised in a fundamentalist environment, or turning into a prince, well, I deserve more, I should have had a better education, I wish I would have been raised by liberal, free-thinking hippies, you know, um, and I, I owe this to myself now, and in fact, I demand it, no, um, but to let it do its work in the form of what is it that I really care about, and the and feeling the the heartache of the injustice of that care, concern, and love not being met, and I that's what I mean by the the hidden gift of anger. It it guides us and points the way toward clarity, constructive action, and compassion. And I think when we don't allow it to to give voice, we we end up um, living a kind of uh, half a life, um, calling certain things that are natural in us bad and evil. All the while, they can um, they can serve a kind of purpose. So, I thought I'd um, end with a little section from Bill Plotkin's book *Nature and the Human Soul*. It's actually a story. Um, where from uh, Joanna Macy's life, uh, Bill Plotkin interviews Joanna Macy as part of the book in the section on the elder, and because she seems to really embody and inhabit a mature uh, elder, what he calls a, a master in the grove of elders, uh, along with Thomas Berry. And you can uh, maybe think of a few other names that belong in master in the grove of elders. And, and um, anyway, she tells the story of the wrathful Bodhisattva, which is called Yamantaka. I might not be saying it correctly, but that's um, close enough, Yamantaka. And the wrathful Bodhisattva is a very interesting image. And if you don't, first of all, something about the Bodhisattva. The Bodhisattva vow in Buddhism is that one achieves enlightenment. And let's not work on definitions right now, but let's just say some kind of uh, enlightenment or union or oneness or um, something like that, but then refuses. The Bodhisattva vow is to refuse enlightenment until all beings are enlightened. And that becomes a kind of clarifying act of warrior-like service in the world to bring more consciousness, compassion, um, and action and clarity uh, to the world, um, to the, the unconscious ones. And I don't think in an arrogant way, but in a, in a noble way. And anyway... Uh, this is what she says of the uh, Yamantaka. She says, the Yamantaka is the embodiment of rage. He has three heads, which I love that anyway, because I think of past, present, future, and and um, uh, sort of, uh, I think that's part of the three heads, and probably m- many other things. He has three heads, and his hair is on fire, you know, because anger, anger has some heat to it. You know, it's belly-oriented. And he is garlanded with skulls. We're all going to die, you know. 
Life is short and fragile, and we're mortal. He's strung also with heads that have just been cut off. These are not even skulls, they're live heads. Think about this as a sacred image. He's draped with venomous serpents. He's got three right hands holding Vajra daggers. He holds a heart in each of his three left hands. I guess as if he's just cut them out. That's what she says. He's just cut out the hearts. And she says the three hearts, this is an interpretation of, of the, um, the wrathful bodhisattva. The three hearts are greed, hatred, and delusion, which you and I have. Greed, hatred, which is really unprocessed, unowned, unintegrated anger. Um, greed, hatred, and delusion. In other words, unconsciousness. And the ones, the, these, the three big ones in Buddhism. He is cutting out the roots of suffering. That's one of my favorite teachings in the Buddha Dharma. Uh, the Buddha Dharma. This is Joanna Mesa speaking. I didn't mention that. It's not about evil. You don't need to posit an evil force. It's just the suffering we create when we get caught in greed, hatred, and delusion. And these roots of suffering are mutually reinforcing like a positive feedback loop. And think about our culture right now, the positive feedback loop of greed, hatred, and delusion. And especially in our politically divisive world. Um, so this bodhisattva, Yaman Taka, is very, very fierce. You see what, what is happening here is not unlike the Jesus story. Um, the wrathful Jesus story. It's giving it a place and an action to go after with fierce warrior-like um, sacred energy to carve out and cut out the heart, in this case of uh, greed, uh, hatred, and delusion. In Jesus' case, it may be um, non-inclusion and um, robbery uh, in the name of God, you know. And that requires access to the heat and the fire of anger where your hair is on fire and you have a dagger in your hand. But behind that veneer is the purest form of care. And, and Joanna Macy ends this little conversation by saying, anger straight from the heart, uh, straight from the heart of pure compassion. What a way of saying it. Anger straight from the heart of pure compassion. That's needed in the world. It's part of the hidden gift of um, this fiery beast that lies just beneath the surface of our sophisticated, nice, um, and cleaned up version of ourselves that we often put out there into the world. So that's as far as I want to go today. <laughs>